Thank you for joining us. I'm Paul Wilson. And I'm Chris Emke. And this is Diesel Performance Podcast. Guys, we got another awesome episode today. Uh, we have on Guy Tripp from SoCal Diesel. Guy, how the hell are you? Yeah, I'm doing great. How are you two? You know, we're excited to have you on and, and talk about one of our favorite things, Duramax Motors. That's right. Yeah, SoCal. I mean, when you think SoCal Diesel, it's for one of two reasons. It's built Duramax engines or licenses for EFI Live. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but Guy, for any of our new listeners, we had Guy on, uh, God, I think the first year of the podcast. It was so long ago. It was such an awesome interview. Um, but can you tell our listeners kind of your background in diesel performance? Oh, gosh. Um, my background actually uh, is in gasoline performance. Uh, I was the vice president in charge of engineering um, for a company that manufactured their own aluminum cylinder heads for racing purposes. And I bought a Duramax pickup to, uh, to tow my NASCAR late model back and forth to the racetrack. And that began my uh, curiosity into diesel performance. I really didn't know much about it at that time. Um, but my engineering background, uh, my engine building background kind of took over. And uh, we have been uh, pushing the Duramax to new levels ever since. Yeah, I mean... I don't think uh, this day and age, you know, to see anybody with a hopped up Duramax to not have something SoCal diesel, whether it's heads, camshaft, you know, or just, you know, complete, complete long blocks, right? Like there's something SoCal diesel related on these trucks. I mean, I think of like UCC competitors with Duramaxes and you're like, oh, it's probably a SoCal. Yeah, exactly. Like, like if you're going to go big power and you're going to do it on a national stage, yeah, it's, it's probably got that name behind it. Um, Guy... You know, having gasoline as, as the background, and, and you said you had, you know, your own Duramax diesel, we're, we're probably going back. We're talking like LB7 LLY style engines, or what was the Duramax of choice that you had? Yeah, correct. Yeah, it was the end of uh, the end of 2002. I had bought a 2003 LB7 truck, and like, like anything else, I had to make it my own. I mean, yeah. geez, even my stand-up jet ski back in the mid-80s had nitrous oxide on it, so <laughs> the Duramax wasn't... So the Duramax uh, truck wasn't going to remain stock for very long. So, you know, we started looking into what we could do to increase power and, and, uh, you know, it kind of took off from there and, and we've just been, uh, leading the industry really in a lot of, uh, a lot of innovative products ever since. How, how do you get started in something like that? Right? Like, I, I know you had a gas background, you, you, you know, the, the basic understanding of mechanics, but like, where, where did you start tinkering? Like, how did that come about with this brand new O3 Duramax? And you're just like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to tear this fucking thing apart. We're going to figure <laughs> out what, how to make this thing better. <laughs> well, you know, it started out innocently enough. Um, I, uh, I again had access to chassis dynos and engine dynos in my normal course of, of work every day. And so I was looking to improve the performance. Um, quite honestly, the Duramax was a little disappointing when I first got into it, uh, climbing out of a, an LS1 uh, powered uh, truck. And uh, I was looking to improve it. So honestly, uh, I opened up a diesel performance magazine and I saw a company by the name of Edge that was advertising a chip that you could put in your Duramax pickup truck or plug in this module under the hood and pick up 125 horsepower. And I about spit my soft drink across my desk when I read that because in the, in the gasoline industry, that was just, there was no way in heck that was just going to be a total scam. And I literally bought one of their modules with the intent to prove them wrong, that I was going to do an AB test on that 
And, and I was so upset because I, you know, I just, I don't tolerate people that are taking advantage of consumers in that fashion. And, uh, I remember plugging that module in one day just before I went out to lunch. And uh, of course it wouldn't work until the engine temperature came up to operating temperature. So you didn't really feel anything at first, but I remember on the way back, stepping on the throttle of that crew cab, long bed, four wheel drive pickup truck and just igniting the tires for a block. And I thought, <laughs> Hmm, this actually feels like we picked up what they advertised. I'm going to go to the <laughs> chassis dyno and see what we can learn. And, and sure enough, it was everything that they had advertised. And, and, you know, you would sacrifice a family member for 10 horsepower in the gas world. I mean, I can't tell you how many hours I have on chassis dynos and engine dynos trying to scratch out five or 10 horsepower. And to be able to just plug in 125 horsepower, that was just fascinating tech to me. No, that's that's one of the things I would say the diesel community is very spoiled by. Um, you know, I know, like, I played around with some, like, LS gas stuff. You know, guys will do cams, intake, whatever. And, you know, you do, like, an intake and a tune, you pick up, like, 10, 15 horsepower. Or we have customers that come from a diesel and go into the gas world, and they'll call us and be like, hey, I want to tune my gas truck. How much power can I add? And it's like, well, you could pick up, you know, a good solid 15, 20 horsepower, and, and they'll laugh at you. They'll be yeah. like, well, my diesel, I picked up 150 horsepower and 200 foot-pounds. Like, How does it make any sense? Um, yeah, exactly. So it's it's pretty, it's it's a different world, you know, application to application. Well, that that's interesting to me as well because uh, as we talk about what you modify on a gas vehicle to be able to get power out of it, a lot of it has to do with airflow and, and getting more air pumped into the right areas right. at the right time. Uh, how did that kind of translate into getting into the engine builds? Because y- you guys, you guys aren't doing a tuner and an intake bundle like you guys generally. Like like we said, we think of you guys as like you know the creme de la creme of of a, of a motor build. Well, uh, I, unfortunately or fortunately, I guess I uh, started surfing message forums. You know, back in that day, that was a primary source of information, and. Uh, and I hit upon a thread where guys were talking about having a dyno day. Hey, let's all take our trucks to a chassis dyno and see what they all do. And uh, being the competitor that I was, the racer that I was, I thought, well, I'm going to go to this dyno day and see if I can't set the top horsepower. Um, and so what I did is, being intrigued by all the tuners, the different modules, both the ones that flash the ECM and the ones that you plugged in under the hood, I set out to purchase every tuner that I could find and then go spend a couple of days on the chassis dyno running them, you know, tuner after tuner after tuner to try and figure out which one was going to make the best power. And, uh, and of course we learned about stacking back then. So you had one tuner that you could flash into the ECM, another one that would plug in under the hood. The one that plugged in would just modify the signals that the ECM was sending to the engine and further enhance anything that had been flashed in. So, uh, a couple of things happened uh, during that time. One is I found the limits of the Allison transmission very quickly and had to had to improve that. <laughs> uh, went to the dyno day and did, in fact, take, take the top horsepower and top torque ratings and then thought, well, heck, you know, if nitrous oxide was good on my jet ski and my gas car, it might, have, well, it might be pretty good on my diesel as well. So did a little research on that. Again, back in those days, nitrous was kind of unheard of on diesels. It was more the propane guys. Right. But once we uh, once we analyzed how it would affect the uh, the diesel engine and kind of looked at it as a catalyst uh, that it was, uh, went ahead and installed a 125 horsepower nitrous kit on my truck, 
and uh, and that was even more fun. So at that time, we were, we were pushing a little bit over 630, 640 horsepower at the rear tire. And again, very quickly found the limit of the factory head bolts and head gaskets. <laughs> so you're just just so I'm following, you're you're still stacking the programmers and nitrous on top of it, correct? Yeah, yeah, we had uh, yeah we had the stack programmers. We had a, a fuel pressure cooler as well, and some nitrous oxide. Yeah. Wow. So Lots you you did every single thing to your truck that we nowadays would tell people like absolutely do not do this. <laughs> Exactly, because, you know, A, we didn't know any better at the time, or B, it was the quest for speed. And, of course, the, the industry has matured over the years, and so we've learned lots of things about why that wasn't a good thing to do. But, uh, you know, so heads came off, and, of course, now I'm a cylinder head engineer, so my background is, is porting, and I take one look at the cylinder heads. And, unfortunately, the Duramax cylinder heads are just absolutely disgusting from the factory. It's like they gave no thought to airflow other than just a way to connect the the uh, turbocharger to the motor and the exhaust manifolds back to the turbocharger is pretty bad. So, uh, you know, ported up that first set of heads, talked with the ARP people about making head studs for the Duramax world, and, and their response was kind of the same thing. You know, why would anybody want to race a Duramax-powered pickup truck or a diesel-powered pickup truck? They had no idea what the industry was like, and and I had worked with them for many, many years on the gas side, so they... they uh, they put a little weight behind what I was asking about. And uh, so that's where we started. And then it just kind of transitioned from there. It was, I like to call it failure engineering because <laughs> as we push the Duramax to new levels, we find the next part that, uh, that didn't hold up as well as we thought it might at that power level. So obviously uh, I shortened up the connecting rods in that LB7 before too long. And, and as you can see, it just progressed into the motor builds that we have today. <laughs> One of the things that I think a lot of uh, with SoCal and, and Duramax performance is the alternate firing order camshaft, right? It's a staple in probably any higher horsepower Duramax build we do here at the shop. And anything that we do at the shop, we're generally using SoCal alternate firing cams. I've always was curious, like, how did that technology come about? Like, what was the thought process? What was the failure leading up to, like... How did how did that come about to say, hey, you know what, we're gonna we're gonna change the firing order of the motor? Well, you know, interesting thing when you um, again as we started building more and more of these engines, uh, we started to see trends, and um, we were involved in the first you know thousand horsepower or thousand rear wheel horsepower engine build uh, back in uh, two thousand and six two thousand and seven. So that was quite the deal when we hit a thousand horsepower at the rear tires. Um, with uh, with a truck that was called Nasty Girl, and uh, and it was the first twin turbo Duramax. Um, I didn't build the engine; it was built by one of my customers with our parts. Um, we learned a lot about that engine at the time um, with regard to billet injector clamps, because we found with 100 pounds of boost, we were starting to push the injectors um, out of the cups on that motor. Jesus! But um, to, to move further in as we started to see crankshaft failures in these things, it always seemed that the crankshaft would fail right between the second main journal and the second rod journal. And I won't say always, but possibly 90% of the failures would happen there and then 10% somewhere else. And so you start to thinking about what's going on with this thing in the Duramax, besides the fact that it's driving a lot of accessories on the front of the motor uh, gear to gear cam, gear to gear oil pump, 
gear to gear water pump um, of course the cp3 pump um, there's a lot of dynamics going on in the front of this motor and i i looked at the firing order on it and noticed that the stock firing order ends in cylinder number three and begins with cylinders one and two and so if we loop that all together essentially what you have is a three one two hit so we think of this crankshaft as this big heavy piece of steel that doesn't really bend or flex but the reality is there's a lot of dynamics going on there's a lot of torsional twist in the crankshaft there's then rebound after that twist after the power cycle um, and so in reality the crankshaft is quite a dynamic piece it is it is flexing and moving around and when you have that three one two hit right next to each other and the uh, the crankshaft seems to break in that area. Just to me, it made sense to eliminate that three one two hit and kind of move the firing order so that we didn't have that kind of trauma to the crankshaft. What year was the was your first like development, or what year were you getting into the alternate firing order cam technology? Ooh, gosh, that is a really good question. Um, after doing this for sixteen years, it's kind of hard to put a year <laughs> on when that was done. I remember we were very, very concerned about whether or not the computer, you know, whether or not the ECM was going to allow us to do that. And so um, grinding the first cam and then um, looking at the firing order and saying, well, if the ECM is going to send a signal to cylinder number three, why don't we just redirect that signal to, you know, the new cylinder based on our firing order and we'll see what happens. And lo and behold, it, the ECM didn't object at all. So um, we, we had a very good customer with a very high-powered drag vehicle uh, that was setting a lot of records at the time. And the factory crank would last maybe a season of drag racing. Um, and as we started to make improvements with um, the aftermarket dampers and the internally balancing of crankshafts, we could kind of see improvements on how long the crankshaft would last, how long the crankshaft would last in that environment. Eventually, we we tried the alternative firing order camshaft in that and it was, it was amazing you know it the effects were has the crank not broken yet you know well we must have hit <laughs> upon something here so uh very successful and so at that point after you know uh, about a year and a half of r&d we decided to release it to the public okay now again socal diesel known for engine builds right and you offer uh, you guys have an array of different camshaft options, and you do, like, full engines and things like that. What goes into, I guess, uh, staging out an engine, right, to, to different power levels and different weak links? Um, you know, are there certain parts that, you know, you as an engine builder would recommend for more of a, um, a race application versus, like, a daily driven application? Or what sets some of those standards when you do your, your engine builds? That's a great question. Um, what we try to do here at SoCal Diesel is we'll, we'll spend some time talking with the customer and kind of get an idea of how he's going to use his motor. Uh, we don't believe in a one-size-fits-all um, deal. We're more of a boutique engine builder. We want to make sure that we build something that's going to accurately uh, reflect or stand up to the environment the customer is going to use the engine in, and whether that's a dual-purpose uh, tow you know, race vehicle or a dedicated race vehicle, um, the builds are going to be substantially different. And so one of the biggest things we run into is the guy that wants to make, you know, 1,500 horsepower at the rear wheels and drive it every day back and forth to work and tow his fifth wheel. You know, it's just not going to happen reliably. Uh, for us, 
you know, we kind of draw a line in the sand and we've, again, we've seen this over years that right around eight, 800, 850 horsepower to the rear tire is kind of where we draw the line in the sand as far as billet main caps and main girdles. Um, at that power level, we're really starting to put a lot of pressure on the bottom end. And so we'll kind of caution the customer. This is kind of the transition line. And, and I know other shops may say, Oh, you know, that's, uh, that's who we, you know, we've done this and we've pushed them way farther than that. But I always look at it from the customer's perspective. He's spending a tremendous amount of money with us and we want to make sure that he's getting the most reliable piece for what he's going to use the engine for. Um, and so we're not going to try and tell him that it's okay to do that. If we don't firmly believe that the motor's going to be able to hold up to that in the long run. That That's an, an interesting way to approach it because I do think that there's a lot of companies out there, uh, that will push and say, Oh yeah, you can run, you know, whatever, up to a thousand horsepower before you're really getting into that. Um, how much does that customization come down to, as you were talking about, as far as street driven and competition? Are you saying I can't have a reliable 1500 horsepower, or even we'll just say a thousand horsepower as like a daily driver? What, what would prevent me from doing that? Oh, well, no. I mean, the thousand horsepower was the exotic race uh, motor back in you know, 2000 and t- 2006, 2007. Now it's very much a daily driven vehicle. Uh, but you get into uh, some of the things that you have to sacrifice to do that drivability-wise versus horsepower. Obviously, we're talking about larger turbochargers, larger injectors, which are going to make the vehicle not quite as fun to drive in a towing application if the guy wants to tow a, a very heavy trailer. Um, so there's there's just trade-offs. You know, any anytime you're pushing that higher RPM level, you're usually going to have to sacrifice you know something down low. And so that's where we really want to dive into, you know, what is the customer going to use it for? And then we'll build the most reliable piece based on what he is going to use the motor for. I like that. Good. Okay. Uh, how has building engines changed over the last, God, I mean, you guys have been doing it forever for 15 years. So how, how has building engines changed over the last 15 years? Gosh, that is a great question. I, I think the biggest change is when, I first started in this industry. I never had any intention of being a diesel engine builder. Uh, my <laughs> business model was to set the company up as a, uh, a manufacturer of, you know, high performance internal engine parts. And then we would design those parts, manufacture them, and then send those out to the other shops um, for them to go ahead and assemble and, and build the engines. And what we found was, uh, there was a lack of qualified engine builders uh, at the time. We were sending a lot of parts out there that were just getting destroyed and for silly reasons because guys weren't checking clearances properly or, you know, maybe didn't have the background that they should. Uh, so what we've seen, I think, over the years as the industry has matured, and I've noticed it even in speaking with different shops and customers on the phone, is now we have a, a pretty big selection. We have a lot of really good uh, companies out there that are qualified diesel engine builders that'll do a really great job um, in assembling these engines for the customers. And I think that's really that's really been the biggest thing is that the industry has just matured. There's more companies out there that are manufacturing parts and good quality parts. Now, <clears throat> the, you know, pr- being primarily a, a Duramax, uh, you know, engine 
provider, you know, we LB7s, LOIs, LBZs, LMMs here at Calibrated, you know, there's there's a lot of differences in those engines, but there's also some similarities, right? And then you get into the LML, a uh, little different, and then you can get into the newer motor, the L5P. Um, what's, what's R&D been like, or have you guys done anything R&D-wise with that L5P platform, and what are some of the differences that you've seen from prior year 6.6 engines? Well, would it surprise you to learn that we've already built a couple of L5P stroker engines? It would not surprise <laughs> me. I would expect nothing less, Guy. <laughs> why? So, uh, what, what, what so, are they doing with their trucks? What do you like? Why? You know, it it, it all goes back to the uh, to the first, I think, uh, Model T that came off the assembly line, right? Uh, that was a great vehicle. And then when the second one rolled off the assembly line, surely somebody needed to know which one was faster. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the L5P truck owners, you know, that platform, you know, as soon as you have more than more than two trucks or more than one truck available, somebody's going to want to go faster than the next guy. And so that's what really drives it. You know, it's, it's amazing. Every time GM, you know, releases a new platform, you know, we start getting the phone calls. Hey, do you have anything for this? Are you ready to go? So, we started in on it right away. So billet, billet stock stroke cranks, billet stroker cranks, ported cylinder heads, camshafts. I mean, we dove right into the L5P platform and, and, and all the supporting parts as well. And so we're starting to see that engine uh, start to really mature as far as a race motor. Okay. What? You know, oh, real quick, Chris, I want to I dive into something. Um, ported cylinder heads. When we talk about that, is it simply just make all of the orifices larger and therefore it will flow more air and therefore it's better? Like, like, how do you decide enough is enough or how to port a cylinder head to get the most out of it? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so one of the things that got me excited about the Duramax engine and the reason that I purchased one uh, in the beginning was that it was the first light pickup truck diesel engine in North America with four valves per cylinder. Um, when you look at what um, the 7.3 Ford was at the time and the 5.9 Cummins, they were both two valve motors. It was also the first motor with aluminum cylinder heads for the, again, the light pickup truck diesels, which again, being an aluminum cylinder head engineer, that was very intriguing to me. But the real difference between two valve per cylinder and four valve per cylinder comes down to airspeed. You might be able to get the same quantity of air in and out of the motor with one intake valve versus two but having two smaller valves and two smaller ports is going to increase the air speed so the velocity of the air uh, in and out of the engine is going to be much quicker um, much greater how what does that mean well bottom line is that comes in the throttle response that's your transition so when you're stepping on the throttle and you're waiting for something to happen under the hood, we're looking at air moving into and out of the motor. Those smaller ports are going to help get air into the motor quicker, get air into the motor or out of the motor quicker, spool the turbo. It's all good things. And so that needs to be kept in mind when porting a cylinder head as well. It's not about just making the largest port you can and the flow bench tells you you've got a really great number there. It doesn't mean anything if all you've done is slow the airspeed down it's fine in a dedicated racing application where it's just nothing but wide open throttle. Um, 
Although there are arguments there that you still have some transition in a drag race motor, you're still going to transition from one RPM to another. Sled pool motors basically are going to maintain a somewhat constant RPM going down the racetrack. But particularly for drag racing and then onto the street, that transitional throttle response is really, really dependent upon not only the amount of airflow, but that airspeed. And so making that port efficient is our number one goal. So for a given valve and a given port size, we know that it should move a certain amount of airflow. And if it doesn't, then that means the shape needs to be improved. It's not about making it larger. It's about improving the efficiency and maintaining that airspeed, be it a cylinder head that's targeted towards a street version or a cylinder head that's targeted towards a race version. We run that balance between overall airflow and airspeed. Man, I knew this shit was over my head. I, no, I'm just joking. I, I get, I, I guy, totally Paul understand. And I are looking at each other like, okay, <laughs> like, oh, good, oh, good. Another person we're interviewing that's way smarter than us. Great. Um, no, no, no. I, I get it. That that's a really, really good explanation because in my head, I'm like, well, you know, I've seen, I've seen an LB7 intake horn. I've seen a ported LB7 intake horn. I've seen a guy bust a Dremel out and port his own LB7 intake horn. Right. I don't know what's better. Like, just, you know, I don't test that stuff. So it is really interesting that you guys are you guys are chasing down a dynamic of this that I don't think most of us think about. I think if I was shopping for it, I would shop to see whose number said the biggest number. I don't know what number we're measuring I mean, I ported cylinder heads as in. As guys but. explaining this, you know, I kind of... I kind of back into it from a turbocharger question with guys that bigger isn't always better. It's a balance for the application or it's a balance of a compressor and a turbine to work together. Yeah, It's kind of that same sense with the head. You can open up whatever port as big as you want, but there's only so much air that's going to come in and out of that valve, right? So it's about that balance at that point. Yeah, and I, I guess I never really thought of cylinder heads as a way to to address transient throttle response right that's like a favorite phrase around here but yeah. like but it makes sense but it does yeah no it's totally logical now that somebody's explained it to me okay <laughs> all right so now i got a handle on ported cylinder heads we've talked about alternate firing order camps what are some of the other staples uh, in your guys's product category what, what else are you you really proud of engineering over at socal you know uh gosh the list the list goes on i'm ultimately obviously very proud of the entire body of work the company has done over the years. But if you really look at a lot of the things in the Duramax world, we've really been a pioneer and innovator in just about everything Duramax. Um, obviously, the billet crankshafts. I mean, we released billet crankshafts back in 2007. Ported heads, CNC ported heads were 2006. Uh, the billet main caps, uh, main girdles, the injector clamps were a big thing. That solved a, a really big problem, specifically with the LB7s, where we were pushing the injectors off. Uh, off the uh, seat there and then um, you know having engine failures because of it uh, piston design we've worked very closely with mall on the on the piston design in the beginning we used to modify the factory pistons uh, D-lip the, LB7s. The D-lip, yeah <laughs> yep the term d-lip in 10 you know that was coined here at socal diesel so uh, the thermal coating you know putting a thermal barrier on the piston to help uh, reject heat not let the piston absorb as much heat so that it doesn't get to the point of melting um, all good things. Uh, gosh, the list continues to, to grow. Can I um, can I hold on to, to D-Lip LB7s and, and just, you know, I'm sure some of our listeners don't know what that means. I'm sure it's not me. <laughs> <laughs> can you walk us through, what, what what is a D-Lip LB7 piston? Oh, again, another great question. Um, 
So the factory piston uh, for the Duramax, actually all of them, has what's called a reverse entry lip bowl. Um, and what that means is, uh, we picture kind of this bowl, or if you look at your, your cereal bowl, um, you kind of have vertical walls. Well, what this reverse entry lip is, those vertical walls kind of converge onto the center of the bowl. So they don't come up straight on either side. They kind of come up so that the top of the bowl is actually a smaller diameter than the bottom of the bowl. And the idea there is for the injection, uh, the fuel stream to be injected right at that lip or just below that lip. And that causes the fuel stream to uh, tumble in the piston bowl. And as it tumbles, it, it atomizes and it mixes much better. So you get a much better burn. The problem is, is that that lip, because it's kind of hanging out in the wind there, is, uh, is ten has a tendency to get superheated and crack. And so I did some, some research. There's a lot of SAE papers on piston design. Um, and they talked about how this, this bowl design was very, very good for emissions, but also not so good for uh, durability with regard to the existing power level. So as the quest for emissions moved forward, the manufacturers found that as they introduced this bowl design, they also had to lower the power level to keep the pistons from failing. Um, but then there was another paper that kind of ran a contrast between the earlier bold design without the re-entrant lip and the new bold design as used with Bosch common rail injection. And the theory was that the common rail injection was such high pressure, high fuel pressure, that it was doing actually a much better job of atomizing the fuel than, than the bowl would. And so um, I, I read a study by one engineer that on a single cylinder engine that did a back-to-back -back test on that, and, and he it, it's in a sense proved it. And so I thought, well, now I know I can go in and modify these pistons without fear of um, compromising something else. And so what we did is we started removing that lip on the piston, and then um, we would cut them ten thousandths off the top of the piston just to make up for the brand new rods we were putting in there and the milling of the block um, when that was being straightened uh, to make sure we didn't have too much piston protrusion. And so um, there was born the lip and ten, and, and that was the way all Duramax pistons were modified. Uh, for quite a long time um, until I got to talking with the Amal engineers about actually manufacturing them that way so that we didn't have to do these secondary modifications. That's so cool. That's another one of those that, like, honestly, we've we've talked D-lit pistons, yeah. I think, with you before. But um, but it is one of those that it's <laughs> it's so easy to overlook some of these major strides that were made yeah. that other improvements have been built off of, right? Like where we were, where LB7s are able to be taken today are because guys like you were doing this entry-level work and, I'm sorry, you said reading SAE papers? <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't think of something I would like to do less right now. Um, <laughs> so like, like it, 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 it is a lot of this industry, this performance, this fun, the, the burnouts you see, the, the dumb videos you watch on yeah. YouTube, it actually tracks back to some some engineer like guy sitting down and doing the homework and doing Stacking the math the tuners, and, and, nitrous <laughs> and the whole nine yards and doing doing all of these things that we laugh about now uh to kind of get us to this point uh which brings me up to where do we see the future uh you know we're taking we got three thousand horsepower on two different trucks on two different dynos now yeah. um or, or one let's let's start there one how long until you get us a three thousand horsepower duramax Oh, 
I think that is going to come sooner rather than later. We're, we're working on some things right now um, that I think are going to allow us to do that, hopefully maybe before the end of this year. UCC is like 40 days away, so you're talking at UCC. SoCal is promising a 3,000-horsepower Duramax. You heard it here, folks. Uh, no, I'm just joking. But by the end of the year, that's crazy. Does anybody know? Do you, are you guys tracking like what is the current highest-horsepower Duramax on record? Uh, I don't track that um, because uh, everybody's measuring stick is a little bit different. That's bullshit. Uh, so one dyno versus another dyno and so on and so forth. So yeah, I like to track wins. Uh, did we, did the customer win? Did the customer win the event? Okay. Um, uh, and so again, we're looking at, um, you know, one of our customers, uh, UCC customer, uh, has been and dominated UCC for many, many years in, in the Duramax world. And that would be Wade Minter. Okay. And, uh, he was a great, uh, research test bed for us. Um, and he would, he would go out and, and compete and win and do very, very well at UCC year after year. And what a lot of people didn't know is. Um, after competing at UCC, he would load the truck up in the trailer, take it home, and then continue racing all of his normal drag racing events for the entirety of the year, and then send the motor back at the end of the year uh, for a little freshen up, for some investigation, just to make sure everything was happy. It wasn't just a motor that was built for just one event, and let's go and throw everything at it that we can, and if it blows up, oh well. Um, it wasn't that way at all. It was reliable horsepower, which proved to dominate the event for many years. Absolutely, yeah. Wade Minter, one Wade Minter, one of the nicest guys you're ever going to meet yeah, uh, at a We've track. Had him on the show you, multiple times. Yeah, you you cannot talk to Wade and not be smiling. Uh, one of the few privateers left uh, in high level of competition. I think most of competition uh, in the diesel community is, uh, I don't want to say taken over, but dominated by shops that have shop budgets. And a shop budget compared to a privateer budget is very very different. Um, so the idea that he's he's building it to go to UCC, I remember interviewing him probably five minutes before uh, and then also five minutes after his first time ever sled pulling, which was at UCC. He was a riot. I, I mean, and, and, and the truck the truck held up. I think yeah. that was always the most shocking part. We see a lot of guys enter or register to go to UCC, a few less of them show up, and then a few less of them make it there to the sled right. pull, and a few less of them drive off that sled pull track. Right. Uh, so to see Wade uh, really representing the Duramax and SoCal in such a big way, I think that's that's been definitely a big win. Okay, then the Wade second put together. Uh, oh, go ahead. Wade put together a great team behind him. I mean, he had a lot of help from the guys at Truck Source Diesel, um, and it was really the team. It was a team effort. They did such a great job, and and we're especially proud of of what those guys accomplished because um, they were the top finishing Duramax or one of the top finishing Duramaxes year after year after year. Absolutely. Guy, I got a question, right? You've had your hand in pretty much every Duramax motor. What What's your preferred engine? What's your favorite Duramax engine out of all of them? Um, you know, that's a good question. Again, I hate to keep saying that, but you guys have some really good questions, and I appreciate you asking me that. Um, after working on these things for 16 years, I can't say I really have a favorite. Comments 5'9". <laughs> sorry, sorry, guy, sorry. I have learned to hate them all. <laughs> <laughs> the only answer that was going to be better yeah. than Cummins 5'9 was yeah. I hate them all. That sounds about right. Uh, <laughs> no, in reality, I mean, they're all, they're all good platforms. Um, from LB7 through LML, there's just been tiny little changes to the internals of the platform, the bigger changes that have happened external with regard to injectors and ECMs and 
you know, fuel pumps and yeah. stuff like that. So it wasn't really until the L5P that there was a drastic architecture change. So for me, when somebody says, well, what's your favorite engine to go racing? It really comes down to probably what ECM am I going to use to control it? Am I using a factory ECM or an aftermarket ECM? After that, it doesn't really matter because uh, the internals are going to be there. It's just all about control oh, and uh, of the engine itself with the electronics. I think you nailed that one on the head. You yeah. know, from us, I asked that question, and I didn't ask it from an engine builder perspective. I asked it from an ECM compatibility perspective. So that well played. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're always so excited to talk with you. What? So we're looking for 3,000 horsepower out of a Duramax from SoCal. Is there anything else in the future that our listeners should really keep their, their eyes and ears open for? The uh, the limit on the on the Duramax right now is really comes down to the block. We can only go so far with the factory block. So um, there's going to have to be an aftermarket block introduced that will uh, be capable of holding up to this horsepower. And so that's uh, that's probably going to be the, the biggest improvement that we're going to see. All the other components are there uh, and capable of doing what we need to do. But so far, the, the block has proven to be the weak link with uh, with failures once we get up into those you know upper 2,000 range horsepower numbers. I love it. Awesome. Well, Guy, thank you so much for set, setting aside so much time for us and for our listeners. We really appreciate it. If somebody wants to learn more about SoCal Diesel, where can they go? Uh, our website, um, we built our website around providing information, and we hope that if the customers value the information we've provided, then maybe they'll honor us with a purchase. So uh, shop.socaldiesel.com is where you can find not only all of the Duramax parts we manufacture, but torque specs, uh, other formulas and recommendations, basically anything the end user needs to help them succeed in their Duramax racing endeavors. That's so cool. Thank you so much again. Guys, for today, this has been Paul. And Chris. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us today, guys. Uh, this has been Paul Wilson. And Chris Emke. Make sure to like and subscribe, and we'll talk to you again soon. I have learned to hate them all. <laughs>